Welcome, friends, to The Flower of the Cedar, a novel in episodic podcast form. We are about to start the next chapter. Come, join us. Chapter 26 She Learns Wilder Ways The Wilder claimed some eighty or more Lamia, women and, as Jan had said, some fewer men. They lived in households of three, at times as lovers, though more often these came together along other than romantic lines, and parted freely. They built their homes after a common pattern, wattle and daub, and a further two longhouses filled with more than thirty initiates to each. Healed of her wounds, Lara was soon housed in one of these. She thought many of the young folk there must have once lived near to her own land, for their features mirrored her own closely. Others, she thought, seemed more like Jan in appearance— some dark as Dane, still others bearing what might have been mahogany tokens, and some she could not place. They welcomed her easily, and she fell with them into the rhythm of their days. A low bell sounded in the mornings, waking them to a plain meal, eaten out of doors as far as the mood of the day might allow. Their morning hours were spent in the study and practice of magic, in the honing and tempering of the will to marvel at and dance among the surrounding world, and in the tapping of its boundaries. Rarely did one Lamia teach more than two initiates for longer than four days together, for one of the markers of their craft was that it took the precise shape of the wielder and could only in principle and guiding be taught. For fear of rote, the Lamia kept the initiates' minds from overlong contact with their own. Lara soon found her best companionship among her fellow initiates, for unlike the Lamia, who changed places with the passing days, the faces of her comrades did not change, or at least changed very seldom, for of course betimes another face joined, or a girl she had known some time no longer appeared. The arrivals and departures were rarely explained. Initiates were free to bring their lives into the Wilder's penumbra and to leave it at their will. This stood at the ruling heart of the Wilder's practice. Alamia, above all, should set her own path, and the core of her life should be a secret held with herself alone. Having done with morning studies, the initiates ate their richest meal of the day, and they had leave then for several hours to wander the woodland, to talk with one another, to visit among the homes of the Lamia themselves, or to spend their time otherwise as they would. 
Some among the initiates took to love-making with one another, as the older Lamia did. But Lara felt no draw, and found herself more often desiring solitude. In the evenings, initiates took up assigned tasks from among an array of work required to warn the wilder, cleaning, home repair, dyeing, laundering, managing the butteries, patrolling, hunting, tilling, and on. Many were tasked with the care of the fosterlings, the abandoned children of the surrounding folk that the Lamia rescued and housed. In many of these things, Lara showed herself pitifully unschooled, but for the most part, the Lamia bore with the ignorance of each initiate, until they should be trained in a given skill or proved wholly inept to it and sent elsewhere. The days often stretched late into the night, for the work given them must be done to completion before they might return to the longhouses and sleep. The initiates near to their first gutting rite would be set for months to cleaning and butchering the game brought down by the wilder's hunters. But in her first seven months spent living among the Lamia, this was one of only three facts Lara learned about the guttings. For no initiate was told this most secret of mysteries, for fear she should learn it and leave, and the guarded work of the Lamia would seep into the common lands about to be handled and known by all. Further, she grew troubled at the indications of discord around the subject. Lamia of the older generation, such as May, spoke with reverence of the right, even as they spoke sparingly. Younger Lamia, of whom Enna was one, bore expressions of distaste and unease when an initiate asked of it, and once, seated round the embers of a fire in late autumn, Enna let fall a comment about other wilders who, she had heard tell, no longer kept the right among them. May quelled her with a word, and she lapsed into a silence at once somehow sad and stubborn. One day, set to patrol duty with another of the initiates and two elder Lamia, Lara caught sight of a building she had not seen before. Small, it could have housed perhaps three or four souls beneath its roof, and Lara at first supposed it must be another Lamia's dwelling. She asked this of the older Lamia at her side, who shook his head briefly. "'It's the holding house for the guttings,' he said. "'Only one there now.' We wait until we've received at least three dangerous ones before holding the ritual. Dangerous ones, Lara said, confused. She thought she remembered the phrase, but could attach no meaning to it. Lawbreakers, makers of violence, said the Lamia. The people send them for our justice, wilder justice. Thus the guttings were begun in time long gone. We were the first arm of justice for the land. The wilders came from this work. Though we did not then choose it, we have made it our own. Lara stared at the windowless structure with its mute walls, then turned and plunged back into the forest. The third fact Lara learned from Enna. 
The Lamia themselves, Enna said to her once, in an unguarded moment, could not reveal the rite if they would. In the gutting ritual they cursed their own tongues to silence. A Lamia who told of the method would find her blood letting from eyelids, beneath toenails, and from the palms of her hands, until her body fell dry as bones in the dust, and she perished. These thoughts disturbed her. And yet in her first months, Lara knew a new pleasure in her shared life with the other young women and men, working beside them, straining her mind toward high thought, eating among them. By unspoken accord, they rarely spoke of their past lives, and this suited Lara well. Jan's face, which rose unbidden in her mind many times those first weeks, gradually melted from her, a snowbank lessening to feed the rush of some unseen brook. She felt loosed somehow from the trouble visited upon her by that book of long ago, with its bringing of hearts into the summer. Surely here, with the eyes and voices of these, her sisters and brothers surrounding, she stood at the very threshold of the place of her belonging. Surely here she might for all time shed the awful memory of the god's moonlight and the fear of his claim on her. Anna sought her out in those early months, sending for her to come to her home, which she shared with the Lamia, May, whose arrow had brought down Lara's attacker, and at times a third Lamia, Kor, one of the Wilder's best hunters. With Kor often gone, Anna and May kept the Wilder's beehives, and their rooms always seemed suffused with the scents of the many honeys their bees produced. While Kor had begun to stay with them only in the months after his first gutting that past winter, Anna and May had shared a home for a half-dozen winters, though more than twenty of these separated them in age. Anna's nature was open, even affectionate, but May rarely spoke nor smiled. When Lara visited them, the three would sit together, but it was Anna who conversed the most. The first time Lara answered Anna's summons, she sat stiff and uncertain before the two older women. Anna brought her three sweet biscuits studded with dried fruit and laced with a tangy clover honey, and as Lara tasted them, Anna told her of what had happened the night they had rescued her in the forest. The young man had been brought partway to the Lamia's land under guard to answer to the justice of the wilder, for he had taken a life. Yet as they came near, he had overpowered his captors and fled. The young man had then broken into one of the Lamia's homes, a small cot built higher up on a hill and set far away from the others. He had taken the young Lamia with a gag to the mouth, whose ethers sent her into a deep sleep. And then he had made off with her. He meant to force her into revealing to him the ways of the gutting, when once he had brought her a good distance from the wilder. But she had resisted the ethers and come to herself far earlier than he planned, 
and when she did, she pitched herself down and cried out, nearly getting away before he beat her over the head with a rock. The noise, apart from alerting Lara, had given him away to May, who with Enna and three initiates had been patrolling in that swath of forest. "'He told you all this,' Lara said, incredulous. "'Of course not,' May said. "'We know how to press a mind to release its secrets unwilling.' Lara took this in, wondering uneasily what magic might essay this, and whether it might ever be used against her. "'What have you done with him?' she asked. Anna said, "'He will—' But she stopped short at a deep, stifling look from May. Lara saw it, too, and did not question the women further." The other initiates soon learned Lara's proclivities to solitude. She befriended one or two of her sisters in particular, and she occasionally wended her way to Enna and May's home, but far more frequently she took to the wild, the hills and the meadows, and the dank forest in her free hours. Her mind mulled endlessly over the dwimmer craft taught in the mornings, she sat before the mute sky and thrust with her thought up into its immutable depths, beginning with growing wonder to sense that she might herself one day move among the circles of the world. Two heart-seeds, cold within, where would she find the third? And ah, oh, that day, the victorious day on which she would see her hearts furled no more, but vibrant, and brought into life by her own hand. The taste and hope of it grew strong in her, increasing with the months that passed. One thing only kept her trouble alive, and it was that she saw no heart such as she had glimpsed, such as she expected, the thriving, simple balcony garden of Emma, the brazen beauty of Jan kneeling, the sturdy haven of Dane's oaken refuge in the winter, the kindness in Toron's eyes and touch, the mighty thronged trunks of the mahogany gun. She longed for the gleaming hearts held in hand of her early imaginings of the Lamia, but no sign did she see. Their homes, their gardens, their orchards, all lay in furrows of plain earth, built with the straightforward strength of backs and arms and the labor of hands. She answered herself in her wandering hours with the witnessed theme of secrecy and privacy that haunted the edges of all the Lamia's teaching. They did not show themselves in profligacy before the eyes of one another, far less before their pupils, should she be surprised, then, that they kept even their hearts for themselves alone? Surely she would feel this as no sacrifice when once her own turn came, that the hearth of her hearts might provide warmth for one only. She did not, after all, seek to warm the earth. But still she feared. Talk of bringing hearts to life, 
did not figure in great part in the craft, as the Lamia taught it, or at least not in so great part as Lara hungered to hear. They spoke, as it were, a different language, a lexicon other than that with which she had lived all the years of her life gone. They spoke of wedding to the currents of life. They spoke of the summer threshold within. And Lara feared, when she at last made mention, hesitantly, glancingly, of these thoughts to one of her sisters, Asra, a thoughtful girl nearly as reserved as Lara herself. The girl paused and shook her head. "'We have not come far into the teaching,' she said to Lara. "'These things will come in time.' "'Have they told you this?' said Lara. Asra's eyes bent over her wide basin, where she was soaping and washing the shift dresses given to the initiates. "'My teacher some mornings ago said that we must wade in the shallows before we may swim deep,' she said, plunging her tawny arms beneath the frothy water. Lara took the clean shift from her and submerged it likewise in her rinse tub, and then began wringing the drops from it before draping it, pinned by its shoulders, to a stout line running between the linden trees, where it would dry in the wind and the sun. But how long must we wade? Lara said. The Flower of the Cedar is written, produced, and published by me, Kay Benavraham. This content is made possible by the support of my patrons on Patreon. We make monthly pledges they can increase, decrease, or cancel at any time. If you are enjoying listening, please consider supporting my work on Patreon. Even a dollar a month makes a great difference to a struggling author. For those of you wishing to support this work in non-monetary fashion, you can tell a friend about the podcast or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help ratings rise so that other people can find it. Thank you so much.